launching the campaign in my second home of British Columbia uh, felt right both in 2015 and it feels right uh, right now in 2019. I can't wait to get out to BC this afternoon, uh, but I'm very much looking forward to getting right across the country uh, in the coming weeks. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. All right, welcome back to another podcast. And that was the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Buckle up. Here we go with the federal election, Rob Shaw. And welcome back, by the way. Hope you had a good summer. Yeah, you too. How, what were your holiday plans? What did you do? Did nothing but work. Work like crazy. Just, yeah. oh, worked my butt off. It was a little bit longer uh, a break than we had anticipated. You and I were ships passing in the night. I was yeah. on, you were off. So, But we're back now. Yeah, we're back now. And a oh, pretty yeah. good time. As you mentioned off the top, and as everyone is obviously aware now, we have a federal election on the way uh smitty <laughs> we it's a perpetual topic you know how to view bc uh and the and the ridings in bc in a federal election mm-hmm. recap for everybody here we have 42 ridings in british columbia there's 17 liberals eight conservatives 12 ndp incumbents two greens and then you got a couple of vacancies and an independent there um what do you right off the top like now that we're actually into this thing what do you make of where all the parties are standing Smith? well what jumped out at me was with the launch of the campaign was trudeau saying that he's going back to vancouver so he launched the election in ottawa he went to rideau hall saw the the governor general made it official that we're having an election on october 21st and then he headed pretty much straight out to Vancouver, which he called his second home. (laughs) So I guess he's hoping his second home will launch a second term in power. And it's interesting because he did the same thing last time. And I don't know if you remember, Rob, but in 2015, on the day that Stephen Harper went to Rideau Hall to launch that election, Trudeau was in Vancouver. He actually went to the Pride Parade in Vancouver that day. Right. And... Everyone was going like, oh, my God, what's he doing? Why isn't he in Ottawa, you know, soaking up all the media attention there? Why is he in Vancouver? Well, he calculated that Vancouver and British Columbia was going to be a critical kind of political uh, turf for him. And he was right. Like, you know, B.C. turned out to be great for him. They picked up, what, 17 seats? Yep. And we had the uh, the Trudeau mania kind of thing going in, in Vancouver. So I guess he's thinking he's gonna try the same tactic and it was interesting that when he headed back to vancouver he went straight to the riding represented by don davies and that is where tamara taggart is running for the liberals the former tv personality in, in vancouver right she's got a terrific shot and now there's a great example of a riding that the liberals think they can steal from the ndp here in bc so once again i think Uh, British Columbia is going to be a crucial battleground in this election. And it was interesting to see Trudeau do what he he did the last time, straight to Vancouver to start the campaign. Talk about a couple other writings here. Our friend uh, Keith Baldry at Global brought these up on the newscast. I think they're really interesting. You got Burnaby North Seymour, which is a newer writing in 2015. The Liberals won it. They had like 36% of the vote, but it's probably going to be a four-way race with the NDP and Conservatives there and even the Greens. The terminus point of the old Kinder Morgan Pipeline project, which we've spent many minutes of podcast talking about over the last while. How's that going to play in the election? Has Justin Trudeau's 
purchase of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, his insistence on expanding that pipeline, um, is that going to hurt him in Metro Vancouver? And that's kind of a riding there that is it is one of the Trudeau mania ridings that was picked up in 2015, barely. Is it going right. to be holdable for the true for Trudeau uh, as he cruises through this election based on his decisions? That's going to be a real test there. And if there's anywhere where the pipeline is a factor in the outcome of the local election, there it could be in those in a Burnaby seat. So that's one to watch for sure. And, and some of the other type of ridings that I'm going to be watching for in British Columbia are, are the other ones that the Liberals kind of picked up from the Conservatives last time. So if you take a look at a riding like uh, Pitt Meadows, right, right, which is one where the it used to be pretty solid conservative seat and yet it flipped over to the liberals last time it appeared largely on the strength of trudeau's personal appeal so is that one now that you know they say that familiarity breeds contempt right and last time trudeau was shiny and new and he was exciting now we've had the guy for 4 years he's got a defender record he's had some scandals maybe the bloom has come off the trudeau rose so to speak do some of those swing ridings that he picked up last time, do they flip back into kind of a traditional voting pattern and maybe it goes back to the conservatives, right? Yeah. And then for the New Democrats, you have the, you have the opposite problem, especially on Vancouver Island. You take a riding like Victoria, which yeah. has not always been uh, New Democrat, but in recent memory has been very strong New Democrat territory. Um, and you have Murray Rankin retiring as the incumbent there and not a particularly strong NDP candidate with a lot of polling showing that perhaps the Greens could take yeah. from the NDP a riding like Victoria. And Elizabeth May, the Green leader, she started her campaign here uh, in the capital region. Uh, and uh, I mean, the Greens' brightest hopes are always on Vancouver Island, but right. uh, they have two uh, elected officials right now, Elizabeth May and Paul Manley in Nanaimo, which, which was won in a by-election. They're going to need to hold Nanaimo which is a, a a riding which the NDP are very strong in, uh, and they're going to have to try and knock the NDP out in Victoria. Otherwise, anything kind of short of that, of those three seats, is going to be considered, I think, a big failure well, for the Greens. I think Jagmeet Singh, the federal NDP leader, is looking a little wobbly here going into this election campaign. You know, if you take a look at where the NDP are in the polls, the, the troubles they've had raising money. I mean, they could have some troubles getting outspent in this Look campaign. at their candidate list. I mean, I think they have 235 of 338 candidates named at the beginning of the election. The election started and there's a bunch of writings that don't have a candidate. And they had on the very first day of the election, they had a candidate in Thompson Caribou in BC's interior bow out due to social media comments. The party forced him out. Social media comments that he had made uh, that were flippant and aggressive two years earlier. Now, yeah. if, if flippant and aggressive social media comments I mean, you can't run for office. Pretty much everyone on Twitter is screwed, I think, well, because it, it, you're, you're, you're toast at that point. But he was the replacement for an NDP candidate in that riding, which had resigned in August. So the, <laughs> so the NDP have basically, they're, they're toast there. That's a riding where Terry Lake, the former BC oh, health yeah. minister, is yeah. running for the Liberals. You right. could have, maybe the Liberals make some gains there. But the NDP, not only don't they have enough candidates, the candidates they have, in some cases, seem problematic. Yeah, no, it's a problem. And... and this whole social media kind of skeletons in the closet thing is just a new reality of politics that all parties understand. And that's why they, they go th through a fairly serious vetting process to, to make sure they root all this stuff out. So to see something like that popping up on the first day of the campaign is another trouble sign for the NDP. A couple other seats I'm watching that the NDP got right now that maybe are vulnerable is like a Squimalt, um, Cowichan, 
these other seats in southern Vancouver Island, which the NDP have now, and that the Green Party would love to steal away from them. So, you know, it, it's going to be an interesting election because you're going to have like a main event of Trudeau versus Scheer, which could be very nasty. The conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, at the launch of the campaign, right on the attack against Trudeau on the SNC-Lavalin scandal and, and calling him a liar and, and indicating this is going to be a referendum on Trudeau's integrity and stuff. And so I think that indicates that that could be a, a nasty fight there between the two main combatants here. And then, But then you've got the undercard of sort of the NDP versus the Green Party, which oh, yeah. could be, which could be well, nasty too for the scraps, you know? Already you watch the way that the Do Democrats and Greens are going at each other, especially yeah. on social media. And it reminds me of the 2017 BC election in which the NDP and its surrogates, mainly kind of the big union players, including the BCTF and the Federation of Labor, just were trolls, essentially, to Andrew Weaver and the Greens. And at one point reducing... Uh, some of the green staff to tears based on these kind of late night attacks on the Andrew Reavers not fit to hold public office and the green and you watch the NDP and Greens federally now and you see a lot of that same animosity coming forward, especially over um, the maritime issue of a bunch of defections from the New Democrats to the Greens that weren't defections, names on a list that defected that didn't defect, you know, uh, Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May. Uh, calling each other names uh, in the media uh, and criticizing each other. It's going to get nasty between the Greens and the New Democrats. And right. that's just the way those two parties fight. And and they have fought like that in the provincial election. And it's it's going to be, I think, potentially that undercard stealing match. You know when the undercard is better than the main event? I think that could be the, <laughs> yeah. I think that could be the NDP Greens. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. The lightweights could be better than the heavyweights here. But if you go back to uh, the main event, Trudeau versus Scheer. What are your thoughts on Andrew Scheer? Because I'm watching his launch today, and if you take a look at the polls, it would look to be dead heat. Like, it's neck and neck, right? They're like at 34% each. It's like a tie. Yeah. And so you you look at that and you think, like, oh, my God, this is like a toss-up. But then if you dig drill down deeper into some of the numbers, I think Scheer's in the tougher spot because a lot of Trudeau's support is concentrated in – Heavily populated metropolitan areas, like especially Toronto, mm-hmm. right, where the, you know there's a ton of seats and the Liberals are expected to do well there. Montreal, another example in Quebec. So that could make it tough for Shear. Now, Shear has started out with this affordability theme, which is kind of reminiscent of what Horgan did in the last provincial election for the NDP, saying, and it, and it worked pretty well for Horgan, uh, saying that, you know, life is too expensive and we got to cut the cost of living. Shear is kind of doing something similar, but I, I'm not sure it's work would might work work as well for Shear unless he proposes some very clear deliverables for people. Like Horgan said, I'm going to get rid of bus tolls or uh, bridge tolls, right. and that worked for him, right? Shear, what I'm looking for from Shear is is he going to make some very dramatic, specific deliverable promises on things like tax cuts? You know, am I going to Here's how much I'm going to cut your taxes, or maybe I'm money. Who knows? Maybe even cuts the GST or something like does something really dramatic if he feels like he's running behind. So I think he's got to do something that's going to catch the public imagination if he's going to catch Trudeau. Because I think for for Sheer, he's got to win a majority 
or nothing. Because I think if he ends up with a minority, only Trudeau can govern with a minority. I don't right. think the Scheer other parties can do a would party. gang up against. Yeah, the I don't think he, I don't think Sheer can do a deal with the other parties. The problem that I think the Conservatives are going to have is that some of the big ticket items that have been popular in major urban centers on affordability, child care, universal child care, and that type of thing, those are not initiatives that the Conservatives champion uh, quite often, and. The conservatives tend to, like a lot of center-right parties, um, obsess themselves over the idea of fiscal responsibility, balancing the budget. They focus on tax credits and things that I think a lot of people are worried about at the at this point. What does a tax credit mean to to you? It's not cash in your pocket. It's done in that really complicated income tax thing when you go to H and R Block or you know like somebody does your taxes for you yeah. and you you don't even know how it's done. Uh, it's not the same as ten dollar a day daycare, uh, right. and it's that's not something the conservatives want. So they they like kind of like the BC Liberals in twenty seventeen are stuck, unwilling to spend the money in a deficit yeah. budget that is required to fulfill the promises that the center left parties uh, are willing to do on affordability, and it makes it tough for them in some big city ridings. They do really well, the conservatives in British Columbia in the north, you know, and in the rural areas. Um, but in, in the metro areas, I think they have trouble. It's, Quebec will be key to the success of the yes. Conservatives. And Andrew Scheer started his campaign in Quebec, hoping to take a whole bunch of ridings away from the NDP, which kind of, you know, miraculously won some ridings. No one ever thought they would win in that province. But uh, and I think in BC, there are some ridings, uh, you know, including on Vancouver Island, uh, where, um, you know, in the Parksville Qualicum area, where Conservatives have traditionally done really well in the NDP happened to win that riding in the last election. So there's there's some ground there. But I just uh, – if this is an election that becomes about big promises on affordability, the Conservatives are in, in some trouble. If it becomes a, a bit more about, um, you know, stability and prudence and, you know, if if, if the, the sizzle of Justin Trudeau uh, is no longer there and you're just looking for someone who doesn't look like they're kind of lying and promising big – then I guess you go for that kind of plain chicken breast that is Andrew Shear rather than the, <laughs> the sizzling steak that is Justin Trudeau. Oh. But uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Well, it, we won't really know what the electorate's thinking for a couple of weeks because people at the yeah. beginning of a campaign, they're sort of like, man, then the first week they're like, whoa, and then they start to get engaged. And that polling kind of in a couple of weeks is going to be really key. Yeah, well, campaigns matter, right? I mean, that's something I think we've learned over the last few years. If you go back to 2015, Justin Trudeau entered that campaign in third place and he ended up winning a majority government. And so I think we got to pay close attention to what happens on the campaign. One thing I'm, another thing I'm just looking for is, is it possible maybe the polls are a little bit wrong and maybe Sheer has got some support that is not showing up in the polls from like maybe like a silent sort of populist vote? You know, are there people out there who might not be willing to tell a pollster or to say in polite conversation at a dinner party, you know, uh, I don't want to pay a carbon tax because I don't believe in climate change or something like that? Or, you know, I, I think we need to overhaul immigration in, in Canada, so therefore I'm going to vote for Andrew Scheer. There may be, like, that silent kind of populist element there of people that might show up on voting day for Scheer that we're not anticipating or counting right now. Because, like, conservative parties are doing pretty well in Canada lately, right? I mean, even this week in Manitoba, the conservatives got reelected to a majority government. Yeah. Uh, you look at Doug Ford in Ontario, Jason Kennedy next door here in Alberta. If you want to go farther afield, Donald Trump, Brexit, I mean, there, there's kind of that thing happening and could sheer potentially benefit from that. I, I don't know if, if that'll happen. I think it's I think this election is Trudeau's to lose.
Yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah. tough, you know, because provincially we get all worked up about how much money there is and how well that it's managed, right? And British Columbia, the new Democrat government here, can't go into deficit because that would be be seen to be basically them, um, you know, messing up and being uh, negligent with our economy. Federally, the deficit is just... It's billions of dollars and it's there and there's really kind of no non-issue. There's really no plan to go back. Uh, so you can spend a bunch of money on these campaigns. And even no Sheer even Shear is fudging on his deficit targets because at first he was saying, oh, I'll, I'll, bu- I'll balance the budget within two years. Yeah. And then he said, well, actually, we're like five years. Well, you know, yeah. Like, and this was the year that Justin Trudeau was supposed to balance the budget. Yeah. If you if That's you go right. back to 2050, this is the year the budget was supposed to be balanced. And instead, he's got the biggest spending spree I think I've ever seen ever like seventeen billion dollars in in spending announcements in the run up to this election. In that the year was, you're supposed to balance the budget. That was pretty cynical. That was a yeah. big amount of money. Yeah, well, by maybe minis- it'll work by ministers and the government apparatus right before an election. It's the yeah. represents a really old school way of doing politics for sure. But uh, we'll keep an eye on the federal yes. uh, issue for you in the weeks ahead. But let's just do a quick recap uh, on one of the big issues that uh, we left in July in the podcast. The old never-ending topic of ride hailing. Oh, yes. God, we've spent a lot of time talking about that. Uh, Is it going to happen? <laughs> well, so in, in a nutshell, uh, what happened while we were gone was the government uh, uh, handed this uh, rulemaking authority over to the Passenger Transportation Board, this quasi-independent agency. They came out and said, uh, here's the rules. Um, the government has set this Class 4 license requirement, so you're going to get a commercial license if you want to ride uh, drive for Uber and Lyft. The PTB also said we are not going to have caps on the number of ride-hailing cars out there. So very significant, very significant. Uber and Lyft aren't going to be capped, whereas you know taxis have a set number of licenses right. that are issued. We are going to have very large geographic borders for ride-hailing yeah. companies. So all of Metro Vancouver, Whistler, Squamish, all the way up uh, the Fraser Valley is one giant riding. Yeah. Um, whereas taxis are stuck in their municipal ridings and they can't cross. Those borders, they can cross them, but they can't do business when they cross the borders. Right. Uh, and then, uh, you know, so th- those are kind of the main issues that came out of the PTB. Now, those are not surprising decisions because they are the ones that were recommended by the all-party committee of MLAs at the legislature studying ride-hailing. Including the including NDP Including the NDP and including the Liberals and the Greens. They all got together right. and said, this is the kind of the way to do it. Also, no cap on surge pricing. You need to allow yeah. the ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft to go up and down on their pricing. There's yeah. a kind of a floor, but they can't go below. But Well, well, what it is is they got to charge the same, what they call the flag rate. So that's the amount up front that you pay is when you when you first get into a vehicle. Yeah. So in Metro Vancouver... I believe it's three twenty-five in a taxi. Yeah, that's how much you know they charge you immediately when you get into a taxi cab. Uber's got to charge the same thing. They're not allowed, so they got to charge three twenty-five up front. They're not allowed to offer discounts or coupons or anything like that. It's very popular, and if you go to other cities, if you go to popular tourist attractions, there are people handing out coupons. Hey, get an Uber. Here's fifty percent off an Uber. Here's a here's a free Uber ride. That'll be illegal in British Columbia. So that's kind of to help the taxis, but. There's no maximum they can charge, but also no minimum beyond the flag rate. And that's another one where the taxis are mad because they got to charge a flat rate at all times. I mean, a taxi, I think it's like, I'll, I'll probably get this wrong, but I think it's like a buck, buck 25 a kilometer or something, or a buck 80, something like that. The, the taxis can charge less than that if they want. 
The ride hailing. Or the ride hailing, big part. Yeah, the ride hailing. So Uber and Lyft can undercut, undercharge the taxis. And so they're mad about that. Now, here's the thing that's going on. Let's have a listen to this, Rob. This is Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, okay, and he, who is very pro-taxi. And he went to a meeting of taxi drivers, and here's what he said. We will not be issuing any business license to ride-sharing companies in Surrey. So there's McCallum saying that, threatening to fight Uber and Lyft, he's saying that they will not issue a business license for ride-hailing because he's so pro-taxi. These taxi drivers loved it. Oh, standing ovation. Oh, yeah. And the Vancouver Taxi Association officials were standing behind him with their arms crossed, like ready to fight with McCallum leading them. So that's very interesting. And... The only thing is, though, I don't think he can do that. I don't, no. <laughs> I don't think reality I, may intrude on that promise. It's provincial jurisdiction, and uh, now he now he's right about taxis. You know, municipal governments can issue business licenses, but it says right in the in the legislation that the NDP passed that municipalities may not prohibit ride sharing vehicles from operating their municipality. Right. So, you know, maybe the tactic for McCallum and, and other people who are opposed to ride-hailing is maybe to tie this thing up in court. You know, maybe this thing just ends up getting in court and we delay the introduction of ride-hailing. Well, it's already in court because the yeah. taxi companies have challenged the Passenger Transportation Board's ability to set the rules. It's not fair. They didn't follow the right process. They should have consulted more with uh, with the actual taxi companies. That challenge could, I guess, throw a wrench into things. Uh, I imagine even if the court Throw, agrees with the challenge and quashes the PTB's um, rules, I think government would just step in and reinstate them in some other fashion. So, uh, But all of that, I still think, is is a bit distant. I, I imagine we are going to see ride hailing by the end of the year. I think uh, despite all of these challenges, it pops up in November uh, kind of ish, and uh, you will have Uber and Lyft. Remember, the, the two big ones have only applied to operate in Metro Vancouver, Uber and Lyft. Right. Uh, if you are from elsewhere in the province, you're going to have a cornucopia of um, lesser known brands at your disposal, like Tapcar and Cartago and a bunch of different Cater, uh, Cater the the um, masquerading taxi uh, yes. uh, app. Uh, so for for a lot of people, ride hailing may not be as visible as it is if you're in downtown Vancouver. You may just stick with your local taxi company because you don't understand the app that has suddenly appeared out of nowhere in your community. But for Metro Vancouver, where this taxi fight is the most bitter, yeah. uh, especially in Surrey and in downtown Vancouver, uh, I still think we're going to get Uber and Lyft in here on schedule in November. Well, the other thing that's jumping on me, though, is the BC government seems nervous about all of this oh, now, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know... Like, this is supposed to be an independent board, but remember that it's appointed by the cabinet, this board that made these rules. And the board basically did what they were told to do. They were they received recommendations from this all-party committee, which included NDP MLAs, as you mentioned, and it recommended no maximum limits on the number of ride-hailing cars on the street. It, it recommended a wide operating area, and they basically did what the committee recommended. And the government also told this committee, look, we want you to bring in operating rules that's going to, that's going to allow this ride-hailing industry to thrive. And so they did. And now it's like the government seems to be kind of freaking out or panicking a little bit because you've got Transportation Minister Claire Trevenna and 
the uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth both saying like, whoa, wait a second here. We weren't expecting you to say no limits. Like we thought maybe you guys were going to bring in a cap on the maximum number of Uber cars. I don't know why they would think that, but I think they're clearly rattled by the the, the anger you're, they're feeling from the taxi companies because there's this perception that these taxi companies are very powerful especially in Surrey with a lot of closely contested ridings. So the NDP might be worried like, oh man, does this thing really back boomerang on us at election time? Well, I was surprised. Uh, Ginny Sims, who is a Surrey, uh, you know, MLA and also cabinet minister, came out right after the PTB decision in a statement and said uh, she was shocked. Yeah, shocked, shocked yeah. At, the, at the decision by the... Well, I don't know how she could be shocked. How could you be shocked? This is what the MLAs were recommending. It is what yeah. the PTB said in its consulting papers it was going to do, basically. Yeah. she was. She's at the cabinet table. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of politics going on now by Surrey MLAs trying to... They're worried. Trying to pretend like um, they didn't see this coming because they told... And this is all of a... This all goes back to... The 2017 election and people like Harry Baines, new Democrat MLA from Surrey, going into the taxi association meetings and saying, we got your back. We are going to protect you. Don't vote liberal because they're just going to wipe you off the map with ride hailing. But you come with us. You come with John Horgan and we're going to help protect you so that you're on an even playing field and you can survive. And the taxis feel now, a few years later, that they were betrayed by the New Democrats. The New Democrats have delivered a a ride-hailing plan that is, at the end of the day, class four license or not, substantially similar in the sense that it's allowing ride-hailing in BC. Pretty wide open. They thought the NDP was going to block it. Right. And the NDP didn't – much like – Reminds me of the Site C Dam issue, where the NDP left the impression they were going to reject Site C. They didn't say it. They no. <laughs> said, we're going to review it. We're opposed to the idea of it. We don't like it. We're going to protect you environmentalists. Stick with us. And then they reviewed it and allowed it. And taxis was a very similar message. It yeah. was, we don't like it, ride hailing. Right. We're going to protect you. We're going to review it. We're going to make sure it's fair. And now they've allowed ride hailing as well. And these issues come back to haunt the New Democrats because of how hard they played them in the 2017 election. And for people like Harry Baines in particular, I think it's a very embarrassing time to be facing your taxi constituents uh, and getting chewed out for what was rightly an expectation they had that you were going to do more for them. That being said, at the end of the day, um, there's still a couple years. Is it possible that this does not wipe out uh, the gains the New Democrats made in Surrey? This dies down. Taxis don't disappear. Um, ride hailing comes in, everyone coexists, and in you know the 2021 election, uh, we're, we're all fine. Is that? Do you think there's a scenario where that happens? I think it's gonna. I think personally, think ride hailing is gonna work out fine. I mean, I've seen it work in other cities, and taxis have not disappeared. Uh, so we'll see what happens. And this board, by the way, they can adjust things later. So some people have been saying, well. There'll be so many ride-hailing vehicles on the street because everybody and their brother is going to want to be an Uber driver that you're going to have Carmageddon and you're going to have tra- you know, gridlock on the streets and endless traffic jams. Well, if that happens, they can fix it. They can bring in a cap later. Like this board does have the authority to do that. But right now, I think the NDP are clearly worried. And they're using this board now as kind of like a straw man saying like, oh, this it's this darn board. You know, they didn't they didn't bring in these caps. You know, people got to remember this board is appointed by the cabinet. Okay, so if they really wanted to, they could fire that board tomorrow. 
and bring in the caps if they really wanted well, to. Well, they 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 allowed the board to do this. They well, passed, yeah. the NDP passed legislation that's that gives the board the power to do this. Yeah, that's why I'm just laughing. Everything. Like, oh, this board is doing stuff. Well, you guys appointed the board. But, you know, I think the liberals, though, are kind of enjoying this because the liberals are kind of sitting back and uh, thinking like, okay, now the NDP are finding out this is a political hot potato when you're in power. This is why they didn't touch it for years. Yeah. Well, and, uh, the, and so they're they're sitting back saying like, oh, this is, this is great. They're getting beat up by the taxi companies. Maybe they're maybe the liberals are kind of enjoying this. Two things on that. I don't think we're going to see the liberals appear in the next election and promise to roll back the class four licensing regime. They're criticizing no. it right now. They're saying. This, the NDP shouldn't have done class four licenses. You should be able to drive Uber and Lyft with your ordinary driver's license. Right. But there's, an, I don't think they're going to go into an election and run on it. Let's make your Uber and Lyft drive less safe by, no. <laughs> uh, re, you know, lessening the restrictions on on uh, drivers. So the, despite all the talk you're going to hear from the liberals of criticizing this NDP plan, I think it's very similar to what they would have done. And they're not going to change it in the next yeah. election. And I guess we have to take a step back. And give the new uh, the NDP government credit, in particular yeah. Claire Trevena, who ran a very risky game as transportation minister. She put all her, her cards and her chips down on Class Four licenses, and she bluffed Uber and Lyft, two companies that said they were not going to operate in BC with Class Four licenses. And lo and behold, many months later, lots of complaining, whining, hand wringing, lobbying, arm twisting. Uber and Lyft are here under those restrictions because they can make money. And credit to Claire Trevena, I think, for staring them down. And credit to the New Democrats who could have found a way to block the ride-hailing sector if they really wanted so to. So it should be and a they, win for the NDP. I think in the end it will be. Okay. But for now, I think the taxi companies... Unless, unless these taxis go crazy, like... You know, this has gotten nasty in some other cities. Well, they've called in all their all their markers, as Vaughn Palmer put it in one of his columns. All all the promises, all the favors owed have been called in by the taxi sector. And that's why John Horgan is writing letters. That's why his chief of staff, Jeff Meggs, is going to Vancouver to meet with the taxi folks. That's why there's suddenly these this this um expression of surprise and dismay by government publicly, even though there shouldn't be. Yeah. So it's a it's an interesting file. We will keep an eye we'll on see that. Where it goes. Um, also, this week, worth mentioning, we got a financial update from Finance Minister Carol James, who, you know, without getting into the brass tacks of this really thick document full of numbers, essentially comes down to the fact that when we had the provincial budget in February, this is the very first update on how that budget is actually doing in the real world, and the surplus has shrunk from 274 million down to a projected 170 million mm. mainly because the cooling housing market means the government gets less revenue in the property transfer tax the slice of the pie that it takes every time a home That's what she wanted though right she wanted a cooler mar housing market well, right Well you know the NDP are yeah that's that is what they wanted and it's funny talking to Carol James who said um even though home sales are down quite a bit and even though prices are down uh, so far this year year to year by somewhere in the range of i think 5% ish this is not an affordable housing market. People would not look at it and say, I can still afford to buy a home or even a condo in a lot of cases. So the NDP's view, this could drop even further and they would be happy with it, which means revenue will drop even further. And, Does it unbalance the budget? And the budget will be squeezed. There, yeah. There's still about a billion dollars lying around in forecast allowance, contingency money, uh -huh. unspent money. So, And it was a year so far in which we did not have many wildfires in the summer, yeah, they were lucky which there. can be very expensive. Yeah. So I think in the, in the 
you know, broad sense. The NDP are still well positioned. The economy is cooling a Co- bit. Economy is still not too bad. Softening a bit, though, Softening right? Softening a bit. Although there's warning signs out there. Well, yeah. I mean, that's uh, you, you do hear... You do hear look the, at the forestry. Look at these mills shutting down. Yeah, you hear the global uncertainty, and then you hear the uncertainty here at home. Yeah, yeah. the forestry sector is just a um, an unmitigated disaster right Terrible. now. I mean, we have had more than one hundred uh, mills that have either curtailed wow. or closed uh, in the past few months. But thousands of people have seen their shifts reduced or their jobs lost. The biggest announcement, uh, one of the biggest so far, was Teal Jones yeah. Forestry Company that a lot of people, is a local company that a lot of people had pointed to as, um, well, here, you know, it's okay for the New Democrats to kind of brush off the big uh, forestry companies that are from, you know, elsewhere when they have to curtail. But Teal Jones is this company that everyone kind of pointed to. They have announced that they basically closing down their operations uh, because, uh, of two very specific NDP forestry policies that they say make it unviable to continue to be to be logging and processing. One is uh, increasing the stumpage rates, which is basically the government's take when a tree is cut down. And the other is this new requirement that you have to, when you're logging a forest, you have to bring out all the waste, which can be a very expensive process because you can't sell that for as much as it costs you to bring it out of the woods, this garbage waste it's not we're not talking like quality cedar here we're talking like the waste and if you don't i think the ndp have tripled the fines that you would face so those two decisions in teal jones's analysis mean that they can't continue to operate at their level uh there's about 300 contractors who are immediately laid off and there's 500 mill workers in mainly around Surrey wow, uh, who are going to lose their jobs. So there's 800 people, wow. uh, and uh, that is a big hit for the New Democrats. Yeah. Now, I don't think anyone is blaming the NDP in a large sense for the downturn in the forestry sector. It's a combination of the softwood lumber dispute, low lumber prices in the U.S., a lack of uh, – we've run out of the pine beetle wood that was really cheap for companies to get their hands on in British Columbia – But what I think the New Democrats are increasingly getting criticized for is where are they with help for the people who've lost their jobs? These are, in a lot of cases, unionized, longtime core New Democrats, many of whom are steel workers, even though they don't work with steel, but they're they're, they're steel workers union, uh, which is the number one NDP union supporter and gave them a ton of money in the last election. And we don't see the New Democrats here with um, increased social assistance, grants for job programs or for local communities. They were late asking the federal government to bridge retirements for people who lost their job but are within a few months of retirement. Ottawa hasn't done that. Uh, And they haven't come up with any innovative programs like uh, in the past. You could have someone who, say, lost a couple shifts a week uh, but could perhaps take claim EI with Ottawa's approval to work three days and take EI for two days uh, as a way to continue to earn their income or or not be financially harmed. That hasn't happened either. And I'm amazed at the slowness of the New Democrat response to the forestry crisis because these are not – these are not – like some of them are companies, but these are thousands of New Democrat unionized, hardworking forestry people who've lost their jobs. And you hear Forest Minister Doug Donaldson come out and say it's a market correction – a market correction is what the liberals would call thousands of unionized people losing their jobs. But the New Democrats, it it astounds me that we are months into this and uh, and we've got pretty much no actual kind of action plan from the NDP. I don't know, Smitty, if you 
if, if you have a similar take on it or not. But I, I think you've uh, put, really wrapped it up beautifully there. And I think you put a, your finger on that at the end there with the, the lack of apparent urgency or concern. And this is one of the things that I find surprising, too, is that especially for a guy like Horgan, who is kind of regarded as kind of on the, the, the brown side of the party in terms of like, let's get jobs in the dirt. OK, so. You know, this is a guy who's building the sightsee dam and, and that kind of stuff. And forestry jobs, especially union jobs, should be of critical concern. And I'm surprised to see Horgan has not done a more high profile uh, demonstration of concern and urgency here with some specific relief and help. And I, I'm starting to wonder if we might see a cabinet shuffle here and maybe a new forest minister brought on, because I'm not super impressed with that minister either, as you mentioned. So it is surprising. Now, maybe the, the, ND, maybe the NDP were calculating that this forestry downturn uh, is really disproportionately affecting liberal-held ridings in the north and interior, and maybe that's why maybe it doesn't hurt us as much. Well, now you're seeing like massive job losses, like you just said, in Surrey. Right. I mean, this is like hitting to to the political heartland where elections are won and lost. So I think this is kind of an Achilles heel for the NDP is an economic downturn or if if it can be linked to NDP policies. And especially if there is not an immediate, um, sensible and and clear reaction from government that we that we're concerned about this. We hear you and we're doing something about it. I just don't see that. Now, the government, if if Horgan or or uh, Donaldson were here right now, they would say, what are you talking about? We're helping these guys out. We're, this, we're really concerned about this. I'm talking about on the ground, is this visible and does it seem like a top priority for government? Because it doesn't. Well, and if you come up with an economic aid program to uh, people who lost their jobs two months ago, yeah. what has happened to that person? Well, they may have lost their home. How have they paid their mortgage? They may have moved from their community. You want immediate economic aid programs. You want... Uh, assistance in retraining. Maybe we, maybe you come up with a program to give people uh, free retraining, or you help them. We, there's lots of very successful government programs uh, for single mothers right now, which uh, pay for people's childcare and some of their other costs when they go into what BC considers to be on uh, in-demand sectors. So if you're willing to train to do the jobs the economy needs, government will pay a lot of your costs. Where is that program? For forestry workers, because when you provide assistance months later, you've already disrupted the community. And I just think that that they've missed the boat on this. And maybe they're analyzing and they're trying to figure out some great program, but it'll be too late uh, if it comes out. It's an opportunity for the liberals there to seize advantage. And Ravi Kalon is the new parliamentary secretary on the forestry file. He's wandering uh, into different communities, meeting people. Uh, checking them off his list, saying, I've gone to Williams Lake, I've gone to different places. The minute he leaves, there's another curtailment in job losses. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the the goal from the New Democrats on that either. Is he supposed to like look at every person who's lost their job like directly before the government can figure out how to help them? I don't yeah. I don't I don't see why you need to visit like you could come up with a plan immediately without having to personally walk every single community that's affected. And I'm not sure why they're they're going that consultation route either. But uh, that'll be something that when the legislature resumes this fall, I imagine forestry is going to be a big topic uh, and an attack point for the liberals well, we, in we've the question said, period. You know, we've said earlier on this podcast, I think the biggest threat to the NDP is some sort of economic downturn, especially if it can be linked directly to government policy and if there's not a, a good government response to it. That is the opportunity for a guy like 
Wilkinson and the Liberal Party to come in here and say, see, this is what we're talking about. These guys are hurting the economy. There's people getting laid off and losing their jobs, and the government doesn't seem to care about it, and it's their fault. So this is where the NDP are vulnerable, and they haven't done a good job responding so far. Another uh, topic that came up in the budget update from Carol James was the continuing risk of ICBC, which you and I have talked about a lot, Smitty. Um, It lost a billion. It's lost almost $3 billion in the last two years. Uh, We are now at where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, on the way that the ICBC has changed how it uh, calculates its rates, which in translation, in layman's terms, means uh, when you go to renew your insurance, you are going to see some changes. Some people might see a little bit of savings. A lot of people are going to see an increase. And I think this is another area where what sounded, what was such a winning file for the New Democrats for so long to point to ICBC, call it a dumpster fire, say the liberals mismanaged it. Uh, this is the solution. And the solution is that you and I and a lot of people are going to pay more for our auto insurance and people are going to be pissed off about that. And you're already, uh, you're already seeing people kind of tweeting out and talking about I'm a good driver. I haven't had, I haven't had accidents in many, many years. I went to renew my insurance and poof, up it went a few hundred dollars. That's that's a tough, complicated file for the government. Maybe the government oversold it a bit because the selling point in this thing was it was going to be this new rate structure for ICBC was going to be basically revenue neutral to government. So it's not a, it's not a money grab by government. It's just basically making the system more fair for a majority of people. So if you're a bad driver which I remember the government estimated was around a third of the drivers you'd pay more. And if you were a quote-unquote good driver, uh, the other two-thirds, then you'd pay less. Well, that sounds like a political winner. Like if you've got two-thirds of drivers paying less for their insurance, this should be a good thing. The problem is that at the same time they're applying this new rate structure, the base rate for insurance continues to rise and go up. So it's it's really like you're not paying less. You're just you're just paying kind of less, less more more or less. Like you're you're just paying. I know I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're paying. You're not paying. You're, paying, you're not paying as much as you might have had. To. You're not paying more. You're paying less more. So you're still going to pay more, but less more than you would have. Have I got that right? Yeah. You're less more. And so for a lot of people, they might be like, oh man. You know, I'm still getting burned. And then the I'll tell you, the liberals got a good talking point here on private insurance, because if they keep they're pushing that. So they keep saying, like, you know, you guys are getting people are getting hosed by ICBC, this government monopoly. It's time to open this up to some private sector competition. Potentially a good talking point for the liberals. Maybe, although I think uh, the reality of private sector competition would be uh, the private sector picks off the people that are the least risk to insure. And all the people who are high risk get uh, underwritten by taxpayers. The, 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 the comeback to that is, and that's a very common attack on the private insurance model, is the liberals could potentially say, well, yeah, we understand that, but we're going to pass a law that every private insurance company that gets a piece of the action here are legally required to take on some of these high risk profile drivers. And it would be... Um, it would be uh, It'd be determined by your market share. So if you're a company and you got 5% of the market share, uh, you would be required to take 5% of the risky drivers. You know, they might try something like that to inoculate themselves in that criticism. The problem with that, and I've heard that response, is the way it's playing out in Alberta right now, which is um, there are ways for the private companies to essentially uh, make it so so difficult by saying, perhaps this is an example they use in Alberta, we're not going to accept you paying your insurance monthly. You have to pay it up front annually in one shot. Well, who can afford who can afford your twelve hundred dollar insurance in one shot? Um, so there are ways that the companies, the private companies, can 
work around that as well. I don't think it's as simple as private versus public, but it's a great issue for the liberals and they're and they're going at it. One of the reasons why this is a problem, I think, is that you pointed out there was a very clever attempt at the beginning by David Eby, the attorney general on ICBC, and probably a small army of spin doctors on typewriters in a government communications room to come up with that argument that two thirds of people will be better off, better off and a third are going to pay more. That is not true. Those numbers are not accurate and they're not true. And they're not, they weren't true the moment they were said because they didn't take into account the 6.4% rate hike that ICBC was already bringing into effect. They conflated the fact that the most people who are going to save money under this plan get both basic and optional from ICBC. If you are just getting basic insurance, 70, roughly 75% of people so far who've just got basic face some sort of increase. That's just your basic. If you get optional with it, then you're around the point of maybe half the people are going to see a, a decrease in your premiums when you get both. So you know what? A two thirds and a third, not correct. Sounded great at the time. They oversold it. Oversold it, right? and yeah. they got too clever by half there. And that, I think that problem will haunt them because they build they build this to us in a way that is not being delivered. And that's simply just a self-inflicted And error. then if you get a speeding ticket in the mail from some of these new intersection speed cameras, you're going to be even more ticked off. Yeah, you'll be double ticked off. Right? I mean, if your insurance goes up and then you get a ticket in the mail, what the, you know, this is going to be another one where people start going like, oh, man, this is killing me. Yeah. So, so those are lots of hot topic one, files. It's one to watch. We're going to keep on top of those. The legislature is back in a few weeks, but uh, there's tons going on right now. We are back in the weekly routine to deliver you the best in BC political news and analysis straight to your ear holes every week. Uh, Make sure you follow uh, myself and Mike on Twitter. Mike, what's your Twitter handle? Let's start. uh, It's at at Mike Smith News. Smith spelled with a Y. S-M-Y-T-H. That's the Irish spelling of Smith. All right. That's how they spell it in Belfast. Top of the morning Mike Smith News. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Rob Shaw underscore Van Sun. Read uh, my work in the Vancouver Sun. Uh, Mike's in the province. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. It's on uh, the uh, podcast uh, app for Apple and also Google Play, Stitcher, a bunch of other uh, devices. And we will be back uh, talking to you next week. Talk to you then.